Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're in the 25th message. We're going to finish chapter 6 today. That's always a bit of an accomplishment for me when we finish a chapter and get ready to move on to something new. So we learned a little bit about Noah in our message last week. The Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about Noah. We knew from chapter 5 that he is of the lineage of Seth, of the godly line of Seth, who was uh, the replacement son for Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. But we're told in our passage last week that God found Noah to be a righteous man, blameless in his day, and he was a man who walked with God. Only two people in the Bible are said to have walked with God. Enoch, who God miraculously removed from the earth, as outlined for us in Genesis 5. And then also here we find in chapter 6 that Noah is described as a man who walked with God. These things were true of Noah, even though he lived in a day of unbridled and unimaginable sin. We often conjure up in our own minds the idea of what unbridled sin really looks like. And I think it's really much worse than what we can even imagine. Today in our world, through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the lives of Christians, I believe that there's much sin that is held back by God's goodness and grace being lived out in the lives of Christians. But in the absence of the Holy Spirit being and dwelt in every believer as it would have been in Noah's day. I believe the sin of his day is far worse than anything we could actually come up with in our own minds. We're told in Genesis 6-5 this, The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was evil continually. Only evil continually. That was all that civilization thought about. How can I hurt someone today? How can I take advantage of someone today? How can I do that which I should not do today? Last week we saw from Genesis 6 and 11 and 12 that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. It doesn't paint a very pleasant picture from God's perspective about mankind, about civilization and the lifestyle that was being pursued by everybody with the exception of Noah and his family. God's majestic and perfect creation had been so thoroughly corrupted by man, so much so that the purposes of God in creating the world had been completely forsaken. Man has spoiled and disfigured God's world, making it into something God never intended. That's the idea behind corruption. It's spoiling and disfiguring. And the plan of God for man to procreate, to fill the earth, to subdue it and to rule over his creation in his image was so thoroughly forgotten in this time that God looked and said that the only thought of man's heart is continuously evil. The earth was filled with people, but the earth was also filled with violence. So God is thoroughly displeased with this reality, and He is going to de-corrupt the world He created by subjecting it to a worldwide flood, wiping out the entirety of the human race, with the exception of Noah, and his family. Now I'm going to say this at the beginning as we get into this. For those who deny the existence of a supernatural God, the book of Genesis presents many impossibilities. The skeptic reads these narratives and says, 
That's gobbledygook. That could never happen. That's just fiction. It's mythology. There's no truth in that whatsoever. Thinking about the creation of the world that we live in and the fact that it's presented to us in a literal six-day created act, well, that's preposterous, isn't it? Didn't it take millions and billions of years for life as we know it to evolve? Well, how did everything come out of nothing? Isn't that interesting? So to, to, for the skeptic who doesn't believe in a supernatural God, a literal six-day creation is crazy. And the idea that a worldwide flood would wipe out all air-breathing life and that the building of a massive ark would inhabit a pair of every species of land, animal, and insect, and that a single family would be spared from this worldwide flood is laughable to the skeptic. So much is such as the world that we live in today. But for those who believe in a supernatural God, these are not really that difficult to accept and believe. A God that can speak everything into existence in a nanosecond is capable of accomplishing what we're going to read about today in Genesis 6, the story of Noah and the flood, far more simply than we can even think that God could do something like that. Sadly, within the quote-unquote Christian community today, there is not universal acceptance over these foundational and fundamental elements within the Genesis account, including what we're going to look at today. So today we begin our detailed exploration of Noah and the flood, one of the favorite stories of children ever. We're not really thinking about everything dying with the exception of what's on the ark. It is, in fact, a horrible story. An indictment against the sinfulness of mankind. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's read together Genesis 6, verses 13 through 22, and see what God's Word says to us today. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on earth, on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. As with every section in the book of Genesis, 
There is much, much more that could be said, and some would say much, much more should be said. But think about this. It's taken me 25 messages to get to this point. (laughs) So how much more do you really want to be said? Well... I think that's a matter of preference. So we're going to pick up our outline where we left off last time. As we looked at Noah's family, his life, the world in which he lives, and now here in our narrative today, God speaks. We already know that God is thoroughly displeased with the condition of his world, and we've already learned what God is going to do, but Noah has no clue. He has no idea. God has had this conversation, if you will, within himself, within the Trinity. He is made this declaration about what he is going to do, and in this narrative, God is going to confide in Noah alone of his plans to bring judgment upon wicked mankind. So our section today contains God's first of two speeches to Noah. This is going to be speech one. It takes up the entirety of the remainder of of chapter six. This first speech will contain two announcements. Two instructions and then a silent act of obedience by Noah. So letter A on our outline, we're going to see announcement number one. Verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. The announcement to Noah is very simply the end of life. We aren't told how God spoke to Noah. We don't know if it was a dream, if it was a vision, if there was a voice from heaven, if there was an appearance of something physical, what would be called a theophany. All we know is that God spoke to Noah, and Noah very clearly heard and understood what it was God said to him. In fact, these are the first recorded words of God speaking anything to Noah, Anywhere in the book of Genesis. And the announcement to Noah is quite sobering indeed. Imagine this. We don't know what God might have said to Noah throughout his life. But imagine hearing this announcement from God. I'm going to pull the plug. Everything is going to die. What? Yeah. Did I hear that right? You're going to what? I mean, we couldn't even imagine God saying something like that. And to be the one to whom God says that must have been quite overwhelming. At least it would be in my imagination. So the end of all flesh is in fact a very terrifying announcement that God is making. The Lord God Almighty has confided this reality to this single righteous man. The end of all flesh has come before me. This is what God says. The phrase, the saying, come before me, is a Hebrew idiom, a Hebraic saying, and it's Basically, God's way of saying that this is something that I, is de- that I have determined to do. I am now going to act. This decision has come before me, and this is what I'm going to do. Because of the pervasive wickedness of man, I am going to act. This is, in fact, what it means when God says the end of all flesh has come before me. This coming act of divine judgment is unknown to the mass of humanity... But God is going to prepare Noah 
for this cataclysmic event. Here we see the universal nature of this judgment. It is the end of all flesh. Now there are times within scripture where all doesn't necessarily mean all. Here it emphatically means all. Every single bit of flesh is going to perish with the exception of that which finds safe harbor on the ark. This isn't localized. This isn't a localized flood. It isn't a localized judgment. It isn't limited. It is, in fact, universal. It is universal because God has already said the thoughts and intentions of man's heart is only evil continually and the world is filled with violence. So God is going to decreate. He is going to uncorrupt what man has corrupted. The word destroy here is the same word that is used earlier in this chapter for the word corrupt. It is a secondary meaning. It is a wordplay on the sound of what we hear in destroy and in corrupt. Just as the people have corrupted the earth, so God will disfigure the earth so it can no longer provide life for them. You have corrupted it. I am also going to corrupt it. You have destroyed what I have created. I am going to destroy it so it will no longer provide life for you. Through its Corruption, society sets in motion, in motion the process of inevitable self-destruction. If we were to remove the clear teaching about the end time judgment of God, I believe, based upon what I read in Scripture, that man would find a way to Wipe himself out. Think about that. Think about the wars that are being committed even now. Think about the bloodshed that occurs day in and day out in our streets, around the world. Man will find a way to bring an end to himself, but God is going to enact a divine judgment here in the flood, and he is also going to enact a divine judgment at the end of time. What we're going to see here is a foreshadowing of what God is going to do when he pulls the plug on history and says, it's over, I am done, and only those who have faith in me, only those that are of the redeemed will be saved. What happens here in the flood is a microcosm of what's going to happen in the end time. Universal destruction, the salvation of a single family and two of every species. That's what we see here. But what is going to happen at the end of all time is the end of civilization with the exception of the redeemed. And after that destruction is executed, God is going to recreate that which has been corrupted by man and we will then inhabit His perfect world in His unadulterated glory unfiltered glory for an eternity a time without end. Unimaginable what we're going to see here. Unimaginable what is going to happen at the end time. And this is the foreshadowing of just that very thing. So man has corrupted the world that God has made. God is announcing to Noah his intentions to to bring about the end of all flesh. And so the second part of our outline here, letter B, is the instruction 
that God is going to give to Noah. Verse 14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and cover it inside and out with pitch. So the instruction is to build an ark. Now think about the evolving announcement that's coming to Noah. I'm going to bring an end to all flesh. Oh my gosh, what is... Am I hearing you right? I want you to build an ark. Okay, I'm not a boat builder. I don't know how to do that. I, how, when, I, so many questions and so few answers at this point in the narrative. Now, a couple of things that are really, really interesting about the Hebrew language that we don't get because we don't know Hebrew. I don't know a lot of Hebrew. What I do know, I read from guys that know it very, very well. So... An ark is not a boat in a technical sense. It's a boat in a sense that it floats on water, but there are many, many other things that float on water that aren't necessarily boats. This ark has no oars, there are no sails, there is no pilot, there is no captain, there is no steering wheel, there is no rudder, there is no navigator. It's simply going to be a massive box that is going to float on the water With no destination in mind. Nobody builds a boat like that, do they? The word ark is used only here in all of the Old Testament. It's used only a second place in Exodus as it describes the small basket that is built to hold the baby Moses as he is floated down the Nile River. Ark in the Genesis account is this massive box Basket in Genesis, in, excuse me, in Exodus, is a much, much smaller version of the ark designed to provide a safe floating implement for the baby Noah, baby Moses, to go down the Nile River until he is eventually found. By the way, the word ark, as will later be used, as in the ark of the covenant, is an entirely different word in the Hebrew language. So ark here is unique to what Moses to what Noah is going to build in the basket that Moses was placed in. Ark means literally box, and the ark is really just a large rectangular box designed only to float on the water to ride out the flood until it recedes, and then he gets off, and we'll look at that much, much later. The gopher wood that is referenced here is an unknown wood species. Some think that it might be gopher wood, excuse me, might be cypress or cedar based upon the consonants in the Hebrew language. I believe it's G, P, H, and R. Some believe it might be pine. But the Hebrew word is used only here. We don't know exactly what gopher wood is. So he was to build an ark with rooms, Literally, the word room is nest in the Hebrew. So he's to build this massive rectangular box with lots and lots of nests for all of these animals that are eventually going to board the ark. He doesn't know anything about the animals yet. We don't know how many nests are going to be built. He's told to cover the ark inside and out with pitch. And this is a water known, excuse me, a watertight product that is unknown in this era. We know what pitch is in the modern application. So whatever the wood type is, whatever pitch is, Noah must have known what it was. There were boats being built in this day and age. We have no idea the size or the shape, the geometry, any of those kinds of things. 
But Noah must know something about a boat because, as we're going to see in the narrative, he doesn't ask any questions as he gets this instruction. Now, this instruction continues in verse 15. This is how you will make it. Here's how you're going to build the ark. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Now, we don't really know what a cubit is unless you've read in your concordance or in your Bible dictionary. But a cubit is approximately 18 inches long, which means this ark is of massive proportion. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 40 feet high. Now that is an enormous floating box for Noah, who is a worker of the soil, not a boat builder, to actually build. The Creation Museum in Kentucky has done its very best to recreate the ark with some imagination because we're not told a lot about the inside of the ark. And this is a rendering of what it is they have actually built. If you go to Kentucky to see this ark in the Creation Museum, you will be overwhelmed by its size. This ark, as described dimensionally here, is the largest known water vessel ever built until the 1850s. Nothing in antiquity ever came close to this size. What is most interesting about these measurements is this. In shipbuilding, we have learned through modern engineering that there is a required length to width ratio that makes a water vessel truly seaworthy. The ratio is 6 to 1 or 8 to 1, which means for every foot of length, for every eight, 6 to 8 feet of length, the vessel needs to be 1 feet wide. The vessel grows in its width proportionate to its length. This is called the 6 to 1 ratio or the 8 to 1 ratio. This is what this thing looks like on a distant view of how long it is. 450 feet long and 70 feet wide is a perfect 6 to 1 ratio. Noah was not a boat builder. This ratio has been determined through modern engineering, and it is the standard by which every large vessel is built today. Six to one or eight to one. Here in Genesis, we have God giving Noah the perfect length-to-width ratio to build this massive lifeboat for his family and every species of animal and insect who would eventually board. Is this a coincidence? Or does this give credibility to a supernatural God asking asking an ordinary man to build an overwhelmingly large vessel? Here's what else we can know about the ark. The tonnage of the ark can be calculated with its measurements. Not how much it weighed, but how much it could actually hold. Since the ark wasn't designed to move through water, but only float upon it, it didn't need a rounded bottom, and it didn't need a traditional hull, 
which would reduce drag, which would make it efficient for moving in the water. It was built for stability to float on the water, and it was built to maximize its cargo capacity. Here's what the modern calculation has told us. The Ark was capable of carrying the equivalent of 522 railroad boxcars. Kind of visualize what that looks like. If you were to take the average boxcar, which is roughly 60 feet long, and if you line them up end to end, it would cover 88 football fields. Now you take those 522 boxcars and you put them side by side and end to end and put them in the ark. That's its tonnage. That's its capacity. A single boxcar can hold approximately 240 adult sheep, which means the ark could hold approximately 125,000 adult sheep. Since the size of the average sheep is larger than the average size of all land animals, the ark could easily carry in excess of 125,000 animals. And considering that every species didn't need to be a full-grown adult male-female, the ark could have carried significantly more than this 125,000 animals. It has been calculated that the ark was sufficiently large enough to carry two of every species of air-breathing animal in the world today and still have significant deck space available. Coincidence? Nobody in Noah's day would ever think to build a boat that large of that design to hold that kind of cargo apart from a supernatural God who spoke his plan to a righteous man that would in fact do exactly what God intended for it to do. Overwhelmingly, an an affirmation of the accuracy of Scripture. I I just think it's mind-boggling how our modern scientific world today can go back into the ancient story of the beginnings and verify its accuracy far beyond the ancient world could have ever thought possible. Even more detail in what Noah is instructed to do in verse 16. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So the ark, according to this verse, has a single window, but the English language doesn't capture that word meaning very well. We would read this and think there's a single window, and we go, oh my gosh, that's pretty dark, and it's probably a little ripe with the aroma of tens of thousands of animals doing what animals do. (laughs) But that isn't exactly what it means, and we get a picture of this from the Creation Museum. If you look at this picture, and you see that very, very top level That is the window that is built within a cubit to the top of the ark, and it covers almost the entirety of the roof of the ark with an overhang to keep the deluge of water out and to allow constant ventilation to come through. This would give the ark the ability 
to ventilate the animal smells and dander and other things that would be generated by so many animals in this confined space, albeit a massively large space. There's also but a single door, which would help to make the ark watertight and far less vulnerable to water intake. And you can see their rendering of this long ramp leading up to that single door at the middle deck. We're not told anything about the interior of the ark other than it had three decks. So there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of imagination about what that might actually look like. But this window at the top would allow light to come in. It would allow ventilation of air to go out. And it would provide everything that the inhabitants would need to sustain life until the flood receded. So we look now in our outline in letter C, and this is announcement number two, verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. So those that argue about a localized flood or a localized extinction of life really must contend with the repetition that we see here where God says all flesh, which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth. It means exactly what it sounds like. So announcement number two, where Noah got the idea that there is going to be the end of all flesh, here it's specifically a flood. God is going to decorrupt the world by submerging it underwater and bringing an end to all air-breathing life. Notice the emphasis here that we see in the beginning part of this verse. I, even I. God is making it very, very clear that he is the one that is acting. It is his world. It is his prerogative. It is his determination. This is not the first of many, many natural catastrophes that would come into the world. In this day and age, they have not even known rain because the earth was still being watered through its natural means as we studied way, way back in the Genesis account of creation. So there's going to be a catastrophic flood when there was not even rain to this point, and it's God's prerogative, it's his determined action that will bring this about. The word flood here is used only in Genesis 6 through 9. It's used in one single other place in Psalm 29.10 as it describes the actions of Genesis 6-9. through It says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever, indicating God's sovereign rule over the flood account and the extinguishing of all life. This is a clear reference back to the events of Genesis 6-9, through which means the word for flood used here is unique as it relates to this singular universal flood event as described for us here in Genesis. The flood is unique to any other water-type event anywhere else in Scripture. The word used here is a one-off, standalone description of flood that we see here in Genesis 6-9. through God, Again, God declares that this judgment will come upon all flesh which breathe the air, and this is exactly what is going to happen. When the flood comes, the earth will revert back to its original condition at the end of day one of creation, where God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was covered in water. There was only light. 
And on day two, God separates the water from the water and He creates the atmosphere, the air that we now breathe. And this is what it says here in Genesis 1, 6-8. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. God called the expanse heaven or the skies and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So before God prepared the earth to be able to inhabit the land animals and all the vegetation and eventually man that he would create, this is its original state and God is going to decorrupt the earth by bringing it back to its original state. The only difference is that the waters that now envelop the earth are going to be teeming with life that were a part of God's creation in the original account that we studied in chapter 1. All air-breathing life is going to come to an end, but not all will be lost because God will make a covenant. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So although there is going to be this devastating act of judgment, God is going to make a covenant with the righteous man who walks with him. You'll notice in this narrative that Noah doesn't say a single thing. Not anywhere. Noah doesn't utter a word. Here God is making a unilateral covenant with Noah. God initiated it. Noah never does anything. He doesn't sign anything. He doesn't pledge anything. He doesn't promise anything. He's simply the recipient of a unilateral covenant that God is making with Noah to never flood the earth again. God sovereignly, independently, and unilaterally obligates himself to save the family of Noah and pledges to never drown the world again. That's God's promise, and it doesn't require anything from Noah. Just like the doctrine of election, God obligates himself to save the elect And the elect don't have to do anything other than place their faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So this announcement brings about letter D in our outline, the instruction number 2, verse 19. And of every living thing of, of, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds of their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So God is going to make a covenant and God is also going to enact a rescue. What an overwhelming task this appears to be to Noah. Not only does he have to build this massive floating box, the biggest boat civilization would see for some 5,000 years. Not only does he have to do that, but he has to fill the ark with two of every living creature. <laughs> You've heard of herding cats. You know how difficult it is to herd cats. Imagine herding two of every living creature, including the creepy things that are on the ground. But notice what it says in verse 22. Two of every kind will come to you. 
Just as the animals came to Adam so he could name them, the animals will come to Noah so he can save them. When the ark is completed in 120 years after the instruction is given, our supernatural God will say, All ye animals come, and they will stop whomever he has selected, and they will turn around and they will line up in the ark and they will make their way on two by two until every living species has gathered on the ark. Well, the skeptic says, well, that's kind of uh, juvenile. It's kind of um, fanciful to think that something like that could happen. Well, if you don't believe in a supernatural God, you're right. But if you believe in a supernatural God, this is not a big thing for God. I mean, we, we studied this when we looked at some of the creatures that God created. One of these that stands in mind is the Arctic tern. It's this bird that flies from the North Pole to the South Pole and back every year. It's its annual migration. Why does it do that? Because God wired it to do that. Couldn't it have figured out a shorter way to get what it needs? Possibly, but it didn't have to because God enabled it and equipped it to do exactly that. A 25,000 mile round trip every single year. That's a supernatural God. And if a supernatural God can wire a bird to do that, He can certainly give an instruction for every living creature, two of every living creature, to come up and line on the ark and to find their nest. That's not a big thing for God. Noah isn't going to have to go find them. He's not going to have to chase them down and rope them up and drag them back to the ark. He isn't going to be climbing trees and making nets or digging holes. He's not going to be out there doing that. He's simply going to stand and watch them as they go. Every living creature will miraculously make their way to the ark, two of each kind, which will allow for the zoological life to be reestablished on the earth after the flood waters recede. Verse 21, as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it should be for food for you and for them. So Noah is told to go out and get some food for his family and for the animals and if you stop right here, it poses a lot of questions, doesn't it? does to me. It just doesn't fill in the blanks. What are the animals going to eat? How much are they going to eat? Where's the water going to come from that they're going to drink? And how are you going to shovel out everything that is the byproduct of what it is they've eaten when there's only one door and there's a window so high up in there you could not possibly ever get rid of it? We don't really know the answers to those questions. We just can't answer them. We can only speculate. Did God suspend their appetites? Did God cause them to hibernate, much like we see in bears where they hibernate for six, seven, eight months out of the year? Were they able to get up and walk around and exercise? Why weren't they fighting with one another? We could never answer all of these questions. But if we believe in a God that can create the world as described for us in Genesis, and if we believe that God can bring about a universal flood, then we ought to believe that God can cause these animals to come and live on this ark for a short period of time and it not be a big deal for Him. If God can cause these creatures to miraculously take themselves to the ark and board it, He can certainly sustain their lives upon the ark without any or with with little work from Noah and the family. The things left unsaid become a matter of faith and trust in a sovereign God. Lastly, in our outline, we're going to look at number E, and this is Noah's response. Not a single word uttered by Noah anywhere in this narrative. Verse 22, Thus 
Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Zero detail. All we are told is obedience. Noah simply did what God told him to do. No questions, no protestations. Simply a righteous man that walked with God doing exactly what God instructed. Think about this. Think about the number of trees that would have to be cut down. Greg, who is a mill worker. Think about the number of trees that have to be cut down to build a boat of this size. After you've cut the tree down and trimmed off the limbs, then you have to make boards out of the trees. Then you have to create some kind of a scaffolding system to get these boards in place. And you have to find a way to make nails to hold them together. Then you have to cover it all with pitch. Imagine making the pitch to cover that inside and out. 120 years is how long it took Noah to build the ark. We don't know if it's just him and his sons or if he hired other people. We have no idea. We are not told. But all we know is that Noah did exactly as God told him to do. The world had never seen rain. There was no nearby sea that this massive floating box could ever possibly get towed to. Most certainly the people around Noah had no idea why he was doing what he was doing. Most certainly was the subject of ridicule and scorn. But as we look at in chapter 7 verse 1, the 120 year period is completed. And it's now time for Noah to get on board. And this is exactly what we're going to look at as we continue through this. I am shocked at the similarities that I find here in A foreshadowing of eternal judgment that is going to come at the end of time. And what we see here is a temporary microscopic judgment, the end of all life, with the exception of Noah and all the animals aboard the ark. And it ought to be a sobering reality for us today to think that if God was willing to do that because of the corruption of mankind, why would we not think that God would not do that again? at the consummation of His kingdom and our salvation and recreate a perfect world and environment where we will see Him exactly as He is and worship Him for eternity, time without end. It's just mind-boggling to me. What would be your response if God appeared to you and told you to do something of this scale? He probably would be a lot like Moses when God called him. But God, but God, but God. See, when God speaks, we are to obey. (laughs) That's hard for us. There's no negotiation. There's no compromise. There's no asterisk. It's simply God speaks and we obey. We obey. 